What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's episode is a really, really good one with Natalie Frank, who's the founder of the Rising Tide Society, which was acquired by HoneyBook just two months after they launched their first meetup. Pretty incredible story. She built that community up from the ground to 77,000 members. We talk all about how they built their community, how they structure their meetup program, which has 400 chapters around the world, and they set up their teams to be successful on a local level. We talk about what it was like to be acquired and what the ROI of community is for their business now. This is it's action-packed with lots of advice, lots of tips. You're going to really love this one. Let's dive in. All right, Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited we finally get to chat. I've been following your work for a long time. Why don't we just kick off with a little bit of background for those who don't know you. Who are you and how did you come to build, be building your community today? So I am Natalie Frank. I am the head of community at HoneyBook and the co-founder of the Rising Tide Society. And I started my community because I was a full-time wedding photographer building my business on the East Coast and um, just kind of experienced extreme loneliness. And I know that a lot of community builders can relate to this. Um, A lot of members in our communities can relate to this, but I had been building this business and I just found entrepreneurship to be an incredibly isolating place that regardless of my success, I felt as though I didn't have anyone to connect with because there was this cutthroat and competitive environment and culture in the small business world that didn't lean itself to being open to collaboration and community. And so um, I set out to change that. And I will say with my community building trajectory, I did not step into this thinking I would ever become a professional community builder. I know everyone's journey is different. Mine was one where I was the member experiencing the pain and I got tired of waiting for somebody else to solve the problem and raised my hand and said, okay, I'm going to start gathering small business owners together. I'm going to start hosting meetups um, in my hometown of Annapolis, and hopefully we can change the way that business is done here. And ultimately what ended up happening was other people caught on. They wanted to take part. They wanted to lead. They wanted to be involved. And so we grew from one meetup in Annapolis, Maryland, five years ago to a community of over 77,000 small business owners from around the world, hosting meetups in just over 400 cities around the globe. And um, it it grew and it expanded to both an online and an offline community that um, many people know today. That's amazing. I, I think everyone who is a community builder can probably relate to a lot of what you just said. I think I hear that story often of this was an area where I felt isolated. I felt alone. It was a problem I wanted to solve and and community just kind of sourced from there. Yeah. That, I mean, I, again, I, I think part of the process that I went through, and I think a lot of us go through in, in stepping into community leadership is learning by, I say, like stumbling my way to success. And that comes from, you know, especially actually, I will say having CMX is a huge resource to learning and not having to make some of the mistakes that I feel like I made early on. But stepping into it with the desire to take care of our people, you know, the the ones going through the pain and the experience and learning very quickly that there is a lot to be discovered about building a thriving community. And it is not as simple as so many think. And so a lot of our, our journey kind of stems from stumbling our way to success and growing this massive and scaled community and learning through the pains of scaling and the nuances of going through an acquisition, just how to do that well and how to create something that isn't just happening in the moment, but actually becomes sustainable. Oh, and we could talk all about that for <laughs> sure. But to kind of dive into your story a little bit. So you, you started with a meetup. Mm-hmm. Was it just like an immediate hit and people we're like, wow, this is exactly the community I've been looking for forever. This is amazing. And everything just started growing from there. Or were there kind of like plateaus? You know, what, what did the growth trajectory look like from one meetup to 77,000 members? So it was sort of this rapid um, progression that occurred primarily because Instagram, back five years ago, Instagram was really this emerging and dominating platform. Um 
this is like prior to Snapchat existing, prior to Instagram stories being a feature. But back in the day when a single hashtag had this ability to go viral and where um, people were constantly going to Instagram as a platform to discover others and to connect. And um, it had just kind of crossed the threshold from being an image platform with one image and a small caption to a place where people were tagging and connecting on a deeper level. And so what happened for us is, you know, we started hosting our meetups here and we would post it on Instagram with my hashtag community over competition. And people would see that and say, huh, community over competition. What is this? Because that aligns with something I care deeply about. I want to find a space where I'm not feeling like I have to constantly compare and compete and and tear other people down to succeed. Like that's not the world I want to live in. And so we leveraged a hashtag aligned with our vision and our mission and ultimately became our mantra in order to connect people on the platform. And so in terms of growth, we experienced a lot of growth very, very quickly. I mean, from hosting our first kind of low-key meetup before we even had a name for our community in March um, of 2015 to June at that point having um, nine groups that were meeting across the United States under this umbrella of the Rising Tide Society. Fast forwarding a couple months later to actually being acquired by HoneyBook um, and at that point having over 100 groups and still maintaining this fairly rapid rate of growth. And I'll say... But you said a couple months later? Yes, yes. You were acquired a couple months after essentially starting the community? Yes. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. Yes, it was It was very, very fast. And I'm sure we'll dive into to that side of the story as well. But the growth actually became a pain point. You know, I think a lot of communities can relate to this as well. But I, I mentioned, you know, I, look, I was a really good wedding photographer. I never imagined my full-time job would be managing a community. No one ever does. We all fall into it. We somehow. do. We do. I mean, look, you put me on a dance floor and I can get some really incredible images. You put me in a group of 10,000 people on Facebook and I didn't know what to do. And so it all came came very quickly and, and growth happened very rapidly in that first year. And then ultimately what ended up in terms of growth trajectory needing to happen as a result of that rapid scale was backtracking and figuring out, okay, how do we build sustainable leadership structures? How do we build community guidelines that actually create the type of space we want to have on the internet? How do we train a moderation team and ensure that they know how to navigate difficult conversations and support our members? How do we do all of those things that other community managers who have gone through training or who are in CMX and have access to all of these phenomenal resources learn as they're stepping into the role? We almost had to backtrack and sort of reinstate because of how rapid the growth was and because of how viral the movement went. Mm -hmm. It's just a different path. But I'll, I'll be honest and say, you know, with a little bit of vulnerability, that it was a pretty painful process. I think our first year was all just explosive growth. And then year two and year three, and even to this day, it's been sort of um, doing a lot of the learning, building more of the structure, creating opportunities for scale, removing bottlenecks, and just ensuring that, you know, from our leadership team to our local leaders on the ground who are actually organizing these grassroots meetups in all of these different cities to their chairs. And then those are the roles that you know, kind of facilitate the meeting and those very niche subjects from securing venue to having a membership chair that takes care of members to um, all the different facets, education, social media marketing, each local group has like all of the, these these micro leaders and macro leaders that are kind of working in tandem. Um, that all came later. You know, day one when we launched, it was one leader per city, go. And very rapidly realized, wow, there's so much that needs to be done mm. in so many different aspects of community building in order to make this sustainable and actually successful. What what was it you think really clicked? Because it seems like, was it just as much as a, a hashtag that went viral? Or, you know, what, what was it that really resonated with people and made them identify so strongly that you know, you're able to immediately find people who are motivated to start organizing events and seeing the community grow so much. It sounds it sounds like you really tapped into an identity or social identity that people were really craving. Look, I think the truth here is that it goes back to knowing the pains of the community. And because 
uh, as, as a co-founder of Rising Tide, I had come from this community and the community was born not out of a desire to create ROI, but out of a desire to actually solve a pain and provide a solution. There was a sense of authenticity that I think enabled people to really know that they could get on board with this community and that it was being led by a group that really understood what they were walking through. And I mean that from the standpoint of our, our member base is small business owners and creative entrepreneurs. And I myself was that creative entrepreneur. I could speak the language. I knew the pains. Um, my intentions at that, especially in launching, look like I was doing this as a volunteer. I wasn't getting paid. We hadn't monetized the community until acquisition. This was a passion project to try to change the way, and it still remains for me very much a passion, uh, to change the way that small business ownership was done. And I think there was a sense of authenticity that people could connect with and align with. Now, that being said, I also think that because it is a community of competitors, and this is something that um, I know a, a lot of folks within CMX have similar types of um, communities. Like I think of it like a modern guild or a union, you know, where with Rising Tide and, and the Honeybook community, these are small business owners that compete in the entrepreneurial landscape. I'm talking, you know, in a small town where we've got a meetup like Los, well, Los Angeles isn't quite a small town, but we'll use LA for the sake of this. For a city like LA where we've got a meetup, you know, we might have 10 wedding photographers attending our meetup, 12 event planners, 15 graphic and web designers, um, you know, f four florists, and they actually compete for business in Los Angeles. You know, they, right. they outside of the walls of that meetup are cutthroat in, in a lot of ways, but we try to cultivate a space where they can walk in and connect with one another. And I don't think that there were a lot of spaces that did that. I think mm. that as a community, we really work to kind of pioneer an ideology. And that's where community over competition comes into play where, you know, you can step into the room and where you might compete out in the field, you might compete in the realm of business ownership. You walk into this community and now you are one, you are united, you are collaborators. And mm. there, there is something to be said for that. Now, it's not easy to do and it presents a lot of challenges, but I think that was an added kind of element to what we were doing that really attracted people and they genuinely were tired of the way business was being done and they genuinely wanted a space that felt safe where they could walk in and be welcomed and have this opportunity to connect with other people that truly were going mm -hmm. through the same season of life. I love that focus on ideology. I think we talk a lot about identity in in community and just connecting, you know, it could be as simple as well, yeah, we're connecting local businesses. But it sounds like you really formed and articulated an ideology that tapped into something that they wanted and needed. Maybe they couldn't even articulate it or they didn't even know it until they saw it. But that that really resonates. You think about most successful communities, they're built around uh, not just an identity, but an ideology, uh, a way of thinking in a way that makes people feel like, oh, this is really exciting. I want to be a part of this space. It feels new and, and useful. Right. Well, but like, so what, what does that look like in practice? So you have these two florists uh, in the same town and, you know, okay, they're like, yeah, sure. Collaboration over competition. Sounds great. Right. And then they show up and and then you're asking them to kind of like exchange their lessons and their advice and their insights. So then it becomes like, well, I'm literally helping my competitor be better. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get over that? So I think there's sort of three key tenets that we approached. And for us, whether it was, you know, in our case, it's small business owners, um, even looking at a community like CMX, where it's all community professionals, technically, many of them are competing for jobs, right? Like, Many of them are mm -hmm. applying for the same job. So in a way, um, you know, these three key tenets really brought our community together under this sort of modern guild um, framework. Although community professionals are like the least competitive people. I know, people. which is why I love them <laughs> and I feel so at they home. They all love collaboration. I know, I know. It's a really powerful group. But yeah, entrepreneurs, look, maybe a little bit further down the competitive spectrum, um, you know, For next sure. to maybe athletes, right? Like very intense folks. But there are sort of three, three key things that we did. So the first is ultimately finding common ground around pain points that need to be solved. So I keep mentioning that, but I, I really believe that if you 
can identify the hardships that your community collectively faces, you can start to position yourself as a solution that all of them want to get behind. So for us, you know, it was sort of like the hard the hardships of running a small business, the overly competitive and cutthroat culture of entrepreneurship, the loneliness and and the the weight that accompanies starting a small business, the responsibility, the fears, the anxieties. We speak to that and we spoke to that and we were able to connect on something that all uh, of the members of our community, despite the fact that they compete, could relate to. And then we went and provided value that solved those pain points and those problems consistently through our content and our, our gatherings in person. And that's sort of where, where it begins. But then you have to build upon that. And so the second thing to really be thinking about if you are building a community where there's any type of competition between its members is that you have to shift their perspective of the in and out group. And what I mean by that is when they are out in the world, they consider their competitors part of the out group and they have their own mm -hmm. in group. And that is sort of a, a human nature behavioral mechanism that we've had throughout all of time in how we navigate the external world. There is our family and then there, is pe there are people that are not part of our family, right? What you have to do is you have to change the way their, their mindset works. You have to change the way they view in and out groups. And so, you know, they may see other people as their competitors externally, but within the walls of your community, how do you unite them into one group, one family, create that identity in which they can all share? And in shifting that mentality, they stop looking at one another as competition and they start really seeing those opportunities for collaboration. They start seeing those opportunities for relationships and friendships and, and there becomes a more humanized aspect to the connections and, and the members themselves connecting with one another. You know, it, it looks different for every community. For us, it's uniting around shared experiences, sharing our hardships, being vulnerable about our pains, even creating inside jokes within the community. We've had crazy things happen. Like, you know, a community member once posted and said, I am going to my ex-boyfriend's wedding this weekend and my date just canceled. Look, we're a business community. Like we're not a dating community, but she was like, I need help. And I don't know who else to go to other than this amazing group of people to ask for help. <laughs> now, within yeah. a matter of hours, the community rallied and ended up flying one of the Canadian Bachelor contestants. Oh my God. From Canada <laughs> to Austin, Texas, paying for the flight with a crowdsourced... We're not just going to get you a date. We're going to get you the date. date. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like creating these opportunities awesome. for connection that transcend even the purpose of the group. And, and you know, part of that, I think, just comes down to creating, creating a family, creating a community. We keep throwing that word around, but going back to the roots of how human beings socially interact and what bonds us and what cultivates that feeling of belonging. And so for us, it's championing that culture of camaraderie. And for the sake of time, the third one I want to make sure I don't miss here is also making sure that we are aligning them around that shared vision of the future. And so David, you mentioned having that shared ideology. Then it's asking the question as a community professional, you know, what is the world that we desire to create together? And together being that key word. So although we compete, what is it that all of us when united can accomplish only as a united unit, right? Alone, we can't do this, but together we can. And so for us, you know, it's it's big things like trying to lobby for small businesses, even in the wake of COVID, you know, with HoneyBook, we, we drafted a petition. We went and we, we rallied around trying to get funding for the smallest of small businesses. We called out the, the, the unfairness of big brands getting funds from the government, but small mom and pop shops not having anything left. And then the PPP got refunded. Like we create these opportunities for collective gain and we rally people together around those shared initiatives and shared opportunities. And ultimately it creates this sense of solidarity that I think is really important. Love it. I think if everyone applied those three lessons, they'd all have thriving communities tomorrow. Or maybe not tomorrow. Maybe it'll take a little time, but soon enough. Okay. So um, you really built that great foundation and built that strong sense of community. Um, it started growing. And you mentioned that like, okay, now it's growing really fast. Uh, and you kind of had to go back and put in more operations. And you learned a lot about what it takes to make uh, a local chapter successful and, and to um, build that team. So what were some of the, the core lessons that you've learned through that journey that are required to make a community program like that successful? And just to clarify, it's both online and offline, right? So you have like, or you had before coronavirus, like the in-person meetups, and then you also had an online community, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I think the biggest lesson that we learned very, very early on is division of labor and leadership and really understanding that 
there are very unique and distinct roles within a community that enable it to thrive. Um, sort of from the mm. start, and I kind of alluded to this, you know, we thought for each city, one local leader is enough. And we very, very quickly realized that, for example, in a city like Los Angeles, um, it's going to be very different than in, you know, um, Missoula, Montana. And the needs of the community will differ. The way in which leadership has to take on different responsibilities will differ. And so what we learned very early on, um, and this applies as well to the online space, I'll say a community of 1,000 people is very different than a community of 77,000. And even the rules that that you need in place for the community of 77,000, very, very different um, than for a community of 1,000. So as something grows or as it adjusts and changes, understanding that there are different roles of leadership that are required. And for us, you know, it was actually a really pivotal conversation that we had um, with Brent Messenger, who I know you know, and he's at Fiverr, Mm -hmm. around this idea of a snowflake model of leadership, which was super transformational and thinking about instead of just having one leader who takes on the entire responsibilities of that online or offline community, building out a team around that leader, thinking about all of the kind of required tasks and responsibilities that are going to fall on their plate, and then almost building, we call it chair positions, but um, having our local leader and then having chairs around them that take on a variety of different tasks and doing that in all different aspects. So for our online community, we have, um, you know, a moderation leader and then a moderation team. And that team ultimately is the team that ensures the health and wellness of the online community. And then we have our local leaders and our, our chairs and so on and so forth. And we create this very leadership rich model of kind of guiding the community forward, which is something we didn't have have very early on. And then one other thing to add too, you know, having a really robust onboarding program is incredibly important. Training that leadership to know how to be equipped to navigate the challenges that come with community management is really key and really important. And I think it's something that if you haven't had that training, you learn very quickly that you need it. And so if you can give that training earlier on to your leaders and anyone who um, is in a position of power within your community to ensure that they know, you know, how to navigate the landscape, how to represent the brand well, how to uh, adhere to the core values and the guidelines. It enables them to do a better job and ultimately to serve the members in a better way. But it also, I found, reduces the burnout and the churn because they feel incredibly equipped and they know um, how to navigate without having to make mistakes and, and learn the hard way. And so I think it's a combination of a leadership-rich model in this case and then building a really robust onboarding program. What is your onboarding? How, how do you actually train them? Is it videos? Is it a playbook? So it's a combination. So we do um, onboarding webinars, which are really important. Um, we also have a Google Drive that is absolutely full of anything and everything that you could need. And so every year we kind of do sort of a a retro on learnings and procedures that are changing. Um, But when someone applies to lead, they go through an application process. Then once and if accepted, they're brought into our internal Facebook group for our leaders only. And they have access to training videos. They have access to um, guidelines, Google Docs. We even have um, docs that are built by leaders themselves. So not just top down, but um, bottom up as well with advice, learnings, um, how to, you know, how to grow a small but mighty group, how to handle um, when people RSVP and don't show up, how to keep your group actively engaged, like all of the pain points and problems they're likely going to experience answered by the leaders themselves that have been through it. Um, and just keeping that up to date, keeping that refreshed. What does the, uh, what does the application process look like? Yeah, so they they apply if they are interested. Um, first, we then do a quick kind of like analysis of other groups in the area. We try not to have too many groups that are too close by, especially if they're not overflowing, um, just to respect existing you know leaders and existing communities. But if it's within about a 45-minute drive from a currently existing group or a group that is meeting capacity and having trouble finding free venues to meet, um, we will check in with any nearby local leaders just to kind of do so, sort of like a, not it's not a background check, but it's just kind of like a reference, like, hey, are you aware of this person? Do they have good standing? 
participating in the community? Are they well-respected? Like just to get a feel on the local level, um, which is always incredibly helpful because it's generally met by a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to kind of broaden the reach of the community in that area. Um, and then after that, if, if all looks good and feels in alignment with where we're going, we will get that leader on a call and a potential leader on a call and get to know them a little bit better, ask them about why they want to lead, their heart behind it, their intention, what motivates them, um, just to get a better feel for also the needs of that that area. You know, what is that local area like in, from an entrepreneurial perspective? What are the needs? What are the pains? Is that something that we can solve? And to get a really good feel for that. And my community development manager does all of this, handles this entire process. Um, and then once accepted, ultimately, they, they'll then go into the onboard, onboarding process. Is that just for the leaders or is that also for the chairs or do the leaders select their own chairs on a local level? It's a great question. So yes, the leaders select their chairs. That process is also... well, it's pretty much just for the primary leader. Sometimes we'll do it for co-leaders. We always do it during transition. So if someone steps down and we're um, vetting for the next leader to come on, because we found that the leader themselves sets the tone for the entire local group. And, totally. you know, having a good leader is is vastly a different experience. Yeah, it's it's everything. So um, the local chairs, though, are selected by the leader. That's really their core team. We give them mm-hmm. advice in how to um, choose, you know, people for those roles and try to help them if they, they need any um, feedback in making those decisions. But um, yeah, they, they pretty much make it themselves. Right. Who? What are the chair roles usually? Yeah. So primarily, um, we have a venue chair that assists in finding locations for the entrepreneurs to meet. Um, it's the biggest pain point that we experience is finding venues for free because we are a free community. People don't pay to attend meetups. Um, everything is is volunteer led on the ground. Um, so that's a, a real pain point. So a venue chair. We often have a membership chair. That person's just responsible for um, handling uh, attendees at the meetups, checking in on members if someone's going through a difficult time and. Um, unfortunately, that happens a lot between natural disasters and economic crises and um, family and health Global issues. Pandemics. Yeah, I mean, imagine that all in 2020, right? I just mentioned everything in one mm. year. Um, but but the membership chair often takes on that role of nurturing and caring for the members beyond the scope of what that one leader can do themselves. And, and the probably the third and, and very, very critical role is the marketing and social media chair. So a lot of our local groups have their own independent Instagram accounts where they, they market what the group is doing, the content that's being shared, the meetups. They'll do spotlights on the community members um, and really just keep that content flowing unique to that um, geographic area and not feeling um, disconnected from what's local and what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so we often will have one or two people that are chairs that are managing social media comms. And those are, those are like three primary rules. I will say every group is different and some groups have, some groups don't need a chair. They're very small. They're very intimate. Other groups, Mm -hmm. like I mentioned LA, LA actually has multiple groups within the Los Angeles umbrella. So multiple leaders. because LA is like seven it is. cities. It one. is. So we're talking multiple leaders, multiple co-leaders, multiple chairs. It's, it's massive. It's a huge network of leadership. Um, so it looks different for every group. How do you decide if it's going to be one leader or a co-leader situation? Generally, we leave that up to the leader um, and we have certain parameters. You know, once a group um, surpasses a certain number of attendees every month, um, but often what we found is the leader themselves raises their hands and says, I need help. Um, You know, when I started, it was five of us getting together in a coffee shop. Now we're 25 and there are a lot more needs or, you know, maybe a leader's business really takes off and they're they're saying, I don't want to stop leading. It's so important to me, but um, I can't take on the scope of work myself anymore. And when that conversation comes up, then we start to go into with them about, okay, let's build out a leadership-rich model for your group. We can do a co-leader. Let's talk about chairs. So it it kind of is a natural evolution. Right. Do you choose a co-leader or do they choose it? We let them choose it, although I'll say it's very collaborative in training. Um, and, right. you know, a lot of times it's kind of a self-select. Um, you know, when, when Douglas Atkin talks about like the curve of commitment, um, yeah. I've, I've kind of in my head reframed it in terms of like a ladder of leadership. And so what we tend to see happen, and similarly, you can look at it from either perspective, is a natural, natural sort of um, increase in commitment over time with certain members of the community that are nurtured well. And some people fall into these different roles and categories. You know, you have your natural, mm-hmm. um, you have your natural co- connectors, collaborators, um, and then you have natural people that want to lead and want to raise their hand and want to be more involved. And all of those roles are so um, necessary to the health of a community. But we found a lot of times 
people kind of self-select, you know? They raise their hand and they're like, I care so deeply about my Rising Tide group. I want to be more involved. If you ever need help, you know, is what they'll say to the leader, count on me. I'm here. I want to be involved. I want to volunteer. And um, sometimes it just kind of naturally bubbles up and makes it really easy to find those co-leaders. And you said that you have a group for your leaders. Do you also have a space that includes the chairs as well? Or do you not really have a space that like provides yeah support for like the team or a space for the rest of the team? This is an area where I think in the future we are really interested in creating a group specifically for chairs and specifically potentially for chairs in each of the roles that they take on right. so that they can also connect on on those right. um, the marketing you know, chairs troubleshooting or the marketing and, chairs and you got venue it. chairs you and got it. chairs. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and frankly, we just haven't had the bandwidth to take that on yet. But what I will say is a lot of the local groups that have chairs also that have their own, like Annapolis, for example, my city, our leaders, um, our leader and our co-leader here also have an Annapolis leadership group. And that's where the chairs are in there with the leaders and they can discuss things before they announce them to the local community. Um, And a lot of them have kind of built these really organic support structures themselves. And oftentimes, look, like oftentimes a lot of the overall organization organizational structures that we put in place at sort of the high level come from the local level. They come from seeing, oh, wow, okay, Annapolis is doing this and it's working really well and Los Angeles is doing this and it's working really well. What if we actually built a framework for that and a playbook for that and then rolled it out to the entire community? And so a lot of things have happened with that cadence and this could very likely be one of them. Yeah. One of the hardest things that we found in CMX Connect Groups, um, which is our local event program, uh, is the chapter leads having trouble growing their community, and they always kind of look for us to help them do that. Have you found that that's been a struggle for your leaders, and, and how do you support them in helping them grow their communities? Yeah, so some communities don't have a problem with this, and others really do. And what we've actually found, and this goes back to old school community building 101, is that um, oftentimes I think there's such a concentration on the one-to-many that we lose sight of the impact of the one-to-one. And every single month before our leaders host their meetups, and this has kind of stopped since COVID since we're not meeting in person, but hopefully we'll restart soon. I actually go live with our leaders and I remind them that their job is not to have the biggest meetup in town. Their job is not to have the most, you know, badass group photo. Their job is to show up and to impact one person that walks through the door. That is their job, one person. And the impact of the one-to-one often then results in the scaling and the growth of the one-to-many. And what I mean by that is if someone's struggling to grow the group or is seeing sort of a, a hardship with getting engagement or a difficult time getting someone to show up in person, our biggest suggestion is to reach out one-to-one, send a DM. Hey, haven't seen you at a meetup lately. Really miss having you at the table. You always have the best stories. Like, are you able to come next week? Or, hey, I noticed you just posted this on your blog. I actually think this would be an amazing article to contribute to the Facebook group, would you be up for posting it and sharing it, right? To actually not be afraid to almost encourage the behavior you want to see in the one-to-one in a way that makes people feel very intentionally selected and very intentionally thought of, um, that can create a sense of momentum that therefore then builds social proof that leads to the groups growing on their own organically. That's something that we found both in the online space and in the offline space. Okay. And have you ever had to, I know we've got to deal with this. Um, have you ever had to let a leader go who's not a good fit? Yes. What was that like? Uh, painful. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very, very painful. Um, you know, we've, we've unfortunately had to do that and it's hard. Like it, it's so hard, especially because we have built very strong personal relationships with our leaders, many of them over the course of several years. However, yeah. You know, for one reason or another, we do have really strong community guidelines. We care deeply about creating an inclusive and equitable community, for example. And so if we ever find a leader isn't adhering to those guidelines or isn't um, in alignment with sort of the the rules that we set forth, we will ask them, you know, that to step down, essentially telling them that we need to select a different leader for the group. And it's a very hard process. It, you know, it, 
I, I wish I could tell you, you know, oh, I found the secret way to do it well and, you know, decrease um, animosity or to make it an easy and gentle process. But I think the truth is that community is messy. And um, for us, we have just done our best to be intentional and kind and empathetic in difficult circumstances. Yeah. I mean, it's like firing someone. It's, it is. It's, you know, and it's a volunteer. So you're like, stop doing free work. <laughs> it's it's like adds this other weird dynamic to it. Um, we've been there before, but I mean, I think every time we've had to make that choice, it was very clear very quickly that it was the right choice. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, what are you doing to educate your leaders on building inclusive, diverse, and equitable communities? This is a really good question. So this is something we've cared about for a very long time. And um, over the years have, I mean, truthfully, going all the way back for us to 2017, we do an annual leader retreat, first and foremost, where we gather our leaders together in a different city. We've hopped all around from San Francisco to Charleston to um, Minneapolis. And I keep telling the team we should do one in Hawaii, um, but no one's no one's biting on that. That'd be epic. I know. You, you pay to fly them all out? No, um, it's we, we pay for the entire conference itself. So there's no fee to attend the conference, but they have to get themselves there. And often it's actually really cool because they'll Airbnb it together. They'll stay with leaders they've never met in person. They'll fly out together. I mean, it's really an every road trip for hours together and pick each other up along the way. Um, but we do cover the entire cost of the conference, um, several meals while they're there, all of the keynote speakers, um, stuff like that. So that comes from our internal HoneyBook budget. But in those retreats for the past, I think, three years now, since 2017, every single year we have addressed um, diversity and inclusivity with either a panel or a training um, or some kind of conversation. And then now in 2020, have kind of taken a step forward to do more. We kind of realized that Having this discussion once a year at our retreat is not enough to ensure that we are cultivating an equitable community and an inclusive community. And so we've actually just hired a DEI consultant, um, Nicole Gabriel. She's amazing. She's one of our moderators in our 77,000 person um, Facebook group to build out an entire equitable leadership course that is built from, you know, starting by surveying our leaders and um, highly involved members who identify as a part of a marginalized community, just to see like, where are we falling short? Where are we not living up to our aspirational values? Where can we improve to make this a, a more welcoming and, and safe space where you truly feel like you belong and you know where we stand and you know that you're back, you're going to have your back and we're going to be in your corner in all aspects. And so kind of building from the critical feedback first, and she's going to go ahead and help us craft that course um, that will become, as I talked about leadership onboarding, a part of that onboarding training and something that right. we collectively are going to take together for those who've been a part of the community, um, myself included, to really learn where we can be better. That's awesome. I love that. I love that you're bringing in an outside expert as well. I think a lot of companies or community teams just try to kind of solve it themselves. Um, but it's it's such a complex challenge and problem to work on that I think uh, bringing in someone who's seen it and done it. I think there's like still a lot of it's kind of a blue ocean of uh, how to do this for communities. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's almost surprising that there isn't a ton of content that I've seen on how to build diverse, inclusive community programs um, and how to do it at scale, how to provide that training to your leaders. So um, that's really exciting that you're doing that. I think I hope that becomes a standard for all community programs. I do too. Last question on this, and then I want to change gears a little bit. Sorry, I'm like asking like a thousand questions <laughs> in your program. I love just going deep. This is, this is awesome. Um, what what are the metrics that you're tracking for this program? What, what does success look like and how do you kind of like collect that data across this you know, m massive community program? Oh, that is such a good question. So I, for us, it's ultimately going to come back to however Nicole generally tracks, you know, what is equity in a community? What is, you know, a sense of belonging? My gut says we will be crafting some sort of quantitative measurement based on um, a feeling of, of belonging, some kind of, you know. You're going to crack that nut? <laughs> look, I'm going to try. Such, I've been trying to do that for years. I, look, and I know, and we haven't even talked about, you know, like um, measuring ROI after being acquired, but no, that's we'll that same, it's that same pain point, right? Like how do you quantify the potentially 
unquantifiable. How do you put a, a measurement? But we're, we need to try. You know, we need to find some kind of NPS style um, system where you know maybe it, it evolves from this first round of surveying and the areas we're falling short and and evaluating. You know, where where are we falling short and by what measurement? Um, and then doing sort of a progressive check in every quarter to see are we improving in these categories? Are we not? I will say, you know, one of the things that I always do, and I, I think this is pretty standard across the board, is anonymous surveying post initiatives. So, for example, we just did an initiative with Honeybook and Rising Tide called Raise the Tide Together, where we did one-day takeovers um, by um, black business owners on the accounts of white business owners modeled after the Share the Mic Now initiative. And so for one day, our black business owners would essentially take over the account. I did this. Um, Justin Shields, who is an amazing, speaking of community builders, an amazing community builder and creative director, took over my Instagram account and shared about his area of expertise for the day. And then after that initiative, sent out an anonymous survey um, to both our black business owners and our white business owners to say, how did you feel about this experience? You know, what were areas that you really enjoyed? What areas need to be improved? What critical feedback do you have for the team? Um, should we do this again? Yes or no? And, you know, we're able to get those surveys in and to do just a qualitative analysis at a high level of saying, okay, resoundingly across the board, every single person said we need to do it again. Resoundingly across the board, these were the areas where we're seeing trends in ter terms of what they love. And then let's look at the critical feedback too and see where we're falling short. Um, you know, and hopefully we continue to use this platform sharing framework within our community to tackle all different types of, um, you know, business and cultural uh, issues in our world that we want to address, whether it's Pride Month or Disability Pride Month or even small business in general when it comes to the holiday season and trying to create amplification within our community between bigger platform old owners and um, people who have smaller platforms in their business, like finding a way to do this and improve it and run those surveys to just get a feel for are we improving or are we continuing to not make progress in areas where we need to? Well, if you figure out how to measure belonging <laughs> with a single question, I will be a beta user for that new NPS. Oh, I accept the challenge because we have to find a way to quantify it. We have to. I just, I don't know if we ever will, to be frank. I don't know if any of us ever will. It is such an intangible, but um, for the sake of, of understanding where we can do better and if we're doing better, I think we need to find some kind of metric that helps us. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some things. There's a sense of community index. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's surveys tied with that. But that's like a lengthy survey with complex analysis. Um, and I think like you, you, when you're talking about a business, and, and we can talk about the ROI side of things, but you know, it's it's like the question becomes, so what? It's like with MPS, which is, you know, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend or colleague? Um, it's like you get this metric that basically tells you how satisfied people are with your product. And the so what is like, well, we know that if they are more likely to recommend it to friends and colleagues, that then that's probably happening. And it's, it's you know, it's reasonable to say that this is a good metric of, um, of, business growth in some way or business value. Whereas a community, you can, I mean, what if you just ask, like, do you belong? Do you feel like you belong in this community? Rate it one through 10. Um, like, could be as simple as that. But then it always comes with like, well, so what? So <laughs> from a business context, at least, it's like, okay, so you feel like you belong. Um, what does that tell us? Um, obviously, it's it's tells you that you have a meaningful community, um, but it, it's it's hard to draw that into some sort of like impact. I don't have an answer there. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I don't either. I think I think all of us are on a quest to figure that out. All right, well we'll keep working. We'll table that. We'll <laughs> we'll take that off the podcast, um, and and work on that together. Um, so so kind of switching gears into that into that direction of you know the acquisition and ROI. So um, what was that like? Um, and I can speak to our experience as well with CMX being acquired uh, by Bevy. Um, what, what were your biggest fears in accepting that offer and having the community be acquired? And how did you navigate those fears? Look, I think we've kind of touched on it without touching on it. But my biggest fear was how do I balance the company's ROI and like their need to see a return on the investment in this community with the desire that I had as a co-founder to keep our authenticity you know, never wanting to, I guess, never wanting the pressure to perform 
to take away from the genuine and just like people-centric culture that we'd already built and being very afraid that going through an acquisition would mean stripping that away, um, would mean somehow losing that authenticity. It was like a huge fear of mine, a very, very big fear of mine. And I think for me, it took, and I've, I've been with HoneyBook now for four years. We've been acquired for over four years, coming up on five, um, the end of this year. And it took, I mean, look, four, four-ish years for me to learn some of these lessons. I think some people probably learned them faster, but I had never been in a corporate setting. I had never worked in a company. I used to joke, actually, when we were acquired with our CEO um, in our one-on-ones, I'm like, you know, I've never had to apply for a job in my life. Like, really? Like, a, I've never had an interview, a job interview. I've never, this is, I come from entrepreneurship. I come from, if I need to make a living, I go out and you know, use my trade or my skills to do it. So there was a huge learning curve there, first and foremost, that most people might not experience, but I definitely experienced stepping into a startup environment, a tech environment. I'm very foreign to a girl from the East Coast who, you know, lives in a city where the streets are cobblestone and brick. And um, it's like a very small town. And tech was this shiny beacon of uncertainty that also was very intimidating. But I, I think I learned that when you can find intersection points where community can provide values to its members, so we can provide something of value, but simultaneously in, in the same vein, provide value to the company, therein lies the solution to my fear. My fear was, you know, they're just going to want to have growth all the time and I'm going to have to grow at the expense of doing right by our members. But instead, I, I was really thinking about it in the wrong way. And I needed to kind of ask myself a pretty simple question, which is like, how do I solve a problem for my community and help the company reach its goals at the same time? How do I do that? You know, not every member of any executive team is going to understand the ROI of community, but I think you can show them through actually identifying those intersection points and providing the value that they want to see that having that community is a true competitive advantage. You know, that they're going to have an easier time getting access to whatever metrics they need to hit to appease the board or themselves or the bottom line. And as a result, if you can prove that you're driving towards those goals um, in a way that still provides value to the community, then you're going to get access to the resources that you need. And so for us, it looked like, you know, how do we create, for small business owners in particular, high quality educational content that identifies the need for our software and demonstrates how to leverage what we built at HoneyBook to improve their life and improve their business in a way that genuinely provided that value that wasn't a sales pitch, but instead was a 20-page guide on workflows and automations, right? Where we're also talking about tools of the trade that are, aren't our platform, where we sometimes freely talk about competitors in our community, which is, I know something not all platform and software communities allow. It is something that we allow. We allow people to ask, like, do you want HoneyBook or a competitor? Like, please give me your analysis. And people respond and tell us what they don't like about the product. And herein lies another point of ROI that I never saw um, initially, which was, you know, being able to contribute valuable insights and field intel from the pain points of people that also don't like you, right? Not just the high NPS scores, but the low, the low scores, the people that churn, the people that chose somebody else and actually deliver that field intel directly to the CEO and the product team so that they can shift their roadmap. So they can change the company strategy so that they can hear what the pain points are and adjust. And we have done that tremendously over the last four years to the point where the product today that HoneyBook has is so much driven by community feedback and so much guided by the pain points that people first experienced four years ago with the product because we have insight to 77,000 people that are applicable to use the product and some that do and some that don't and why they don't and why they don't like it or why they like a competitor more. And we can understand maybe what they're trying to accomplish in ways that we have also fallen short on the product side and provide immense value in that respect. How do you navigate that objectivity? I know for us, um, that was certainly a concern I had going in and something we still have to navigate is, you know, we, we partner with all the platforms in the industry. I mean, CMX was around for five years before being acquired as well. So a little bit unique in that regard, you know, and we've built part of our ideology was being objective and um, still is being objective. Um, but then, you know, sometimes it's hard if, if we're having an event and a competitor to Bevy wants to sponsor that event. You know, I think from that ideology standpoint, it's really important that we maintain 
that authentic objective standard. Um, but that that may not fly well with with the rest of the business. Um, and it's certainly a conversation that we've had to have. Have you navigated that conversation internally? Frankly, it's not always easy, but I think it kind of comes back to establishing the understanding collectively that the community is valuable and maintaining that authenticity and maintaining that sense of excitement, connection, and value that members get from the community ultimately determines whether or not it is a source that continues to drive top of funnel growth, awareness, and sentiment, right? And if we aren't objective, if we only pitch our product, if we only sell HoneyBook, then we're not actually providing value. And what's going to happen is the members are going to leave. The community is going to run dry. It's going to become stale and people are no longer going to want to be a part of it. Whereas if you create a space that truly enables that type of conversation, that, that people feel safe coming in and saying, hey, this is what I use and this is what I do and th- these are the products that I have, um, ultimately you're growing the community and the benefits that, that that brand or company reaps from it will continue forward. I, I once described it um, to an executive way back in the day as like, like a, a garden hose, right? And it's like, if you, if you essentially um, continue to sell your product in a way that is disingenuous and it, it rubs the community the wrong way, you're sen- essentially taking your hand and you're cutting off water supply to the garden, right? Like you're, you're stopping the flow of authentic ideas and conversation and free dialogue and um, all, some, all of the amazing things that make a community great and thriving. And what happens is you won't see it right away. You know, the flowers have been watered yesterday. They're going to be just fine. But months from now, years from now, it's going to dry up and it's no longer going to bring any value whatsoever. And it's actually going to become an eyesore that can have detrimental effects on the property value right? Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is you need to understand that the care and the health of the community are equally as important as the ROI that the executives want to drive. Um, And I I think it's just striking that balance. And look, there's always going to be a a disconnect, like, and every company is different. There's always going to be sort of a disconnect, I think, sometimes between the finance folks um, on the team and the more mission-driven visionary folks maybe in the product or, you know, the CEO or um, your head of people that get it, you know, that get the value of human connection. Finance has always been a, a tough point for us because you do got you have to prove out the ROI, you have to prove out the value, you have to set KPIs that are going to drive towards company growth to get access to resources, and sometimes it can be a harder sell, um, but it's not impossible. It really isn't impossible. It's just a little bit more of a challenge. What What do you do for that? What do you report on as far as ROI? So uh, half over half, we used to do quarters, but now we're sort of doing halves. Um, Half over half, it really depends on what the company objectives are. So ultimately what I do is, is you know, when the company gets together and the executives sit down and they say, okay, for 1H, first half of the year, um, these are the objectives of the company. We want to increase membership by X. We want to, you know, diversify verticals by X. We want to do this, that, and the other. Then as a community team, we sit down and we say, okay, um, where can we drive forward on these goals? Where can we move the needle? And through which initiatives are we going to do that? And so, you know, if it looks like increasing our member base, we're going to go in and say, okay, um, where by, are by we- By member base, you mean like Paying, getting yes, new customers. paying yeah. HoneyBook members, paying customers. Um, ultimately, we, we can kind of do a little bit of a waterfall model to see um, where where our trickle-down effect happens. And so we've done this different ways. You know, we can look at something like uh, webinars that we host, content that we put out, um, email addresses that we acquire through lead generation in the community, um, different types of data reports that we've done through surveys in the community that lead to that email acquisition, that lead to conversion down the line. And we know um, our conversion rate in in, you know, the, those community touch points. Now, I will say we don't yet have robust multi-touch attribution, which right. is really important to understanding all the ways that you're touching someone. But we can make those sort of general inferences that if someone attended a webinar and started a trial the same day or the day after, um, that, that there are those connection points. And so we can track that. So that's that's an example, right? That's an example of how we can um, track something really tangible like growth in the context of something that's maybe um, more ambiguous, like content, right? A broader a broader understanding. Mm-hmm. 
um, of what we provide to the community and what we offer. But I also think part of it um, has to come with a little bit of, of trust and faith, right? You know, it, I do believe in being data-driven. I do believe in driving hard towards a specific metric and a number. But I also understand that even with measurements around sentiment and um, affinity in a brand, it's still somewhat ambiguous. You know, it's it's sort of like... Um, Actually, there's a a blog post that Gary Vaynerchuk put out years and years ago that hit me. And it was this idea that he was in a meeting and Gary gets asked, you know, what's the ROI of social media? Like, Mm. what is the value of social media? And at that point, you know, there really wasn't a full understanding of... I remember this one. Yeah, like all those metrics that we measure today. Like now when you say, what is the ROI of social media? Someone could go on about engagement and like all of the different um, insights that even we have now in our Facebook Facebook communities or other types of communities and metrics that we can get access to that really didn't exist back then. And Gary just looked at this, you know, I think it was a CMO and said, what's the ROI of your mother? Like... How do you quantify the impact she's had on your life and the person that you are today? Like, would you be where you are without your mother um, and, and all that she's provided? Like, how would you quantify that? What number would you stick on that? It's very hard, if not impossible, to do so, right? And I think for community, unfortunately, the battle that I, I face and a lot of us face is it's very, very similar. It's like, what's the ROI of your mother? <laughs> like, if you have a thriving community, it makes all the difference. I've seen startups, and I'm an advisor for a, a startup in particular that has exploded, has absolutely exploded. And it's 100% been driven by community, 100%. Um, now, can we quantify w- w- you know, where their explosive growth um, has come from? Some respects, yes, but it still looks a lot like Instagram and Facebook. And you know, is it social or is it the community connections? Is it the fact that people have this passionate sentiment about the brand and are passionately on fire for it, right? And we've seen that at HoneyBook too. We've seen the way that our community members go out and advocate and evangelize. And in the corners of the internet where our brand doesn't reach, but the conversations unfold around who to use and what products they believe in, they're going to bat for us and they're fighting for us. So I think for us, when it comes down to ROI, it's a combination between things we can measure and specifically things we can measure that align with whatever the company's objectives are for that half or that quarter so that it it ladders up to what the executives are thinking of top of mind. Because at the end of the day, if I can say, hey, I'm going to drive, you know, 5,000 trialers this month through this initiative. Um, I'm going to get resources for whatever I'm asking for. And I deliver on that. You know, I can do a very, very quick calculation to determine how to get there. And great. But at the same time, when, and we've seen this with the pandemic, specifically in the impact on small businesses, when something like that happens and, you know, the CEO and I have a phone call and he says, our only objective is to save our members' businesses. Like, if we don't save their businesses, we don't exist as a company. And they're about to be hit by this pandemic. I was never asked once for a KPI. I was never asked once for a metric because there was trust and there was the understanding that I was going to give 100% of my heart, my time, and my effort, and my team's effort to solving that objective, to doing whatever we had to do to provide the resources to get lawyers on webinars so that they knew how to legally protect themselves, financial experts to understand the PPP regulations, you know, down to the nitty gritty that that our members needed to survive COVID. Um, and we've seen the impact tenfold. We've had the most successful months of growth very, very recently in one of the hardest seasons that our community has ever faced. And I know without a, f- a fraction of doubt in my mind, and so does our executive team, that that was built on the sentiment earned from showing up for them in the darkest of their moments, right? Not measured by a metric, but instead felt very qualitatively. And we've seen that feedback pouring in um, constantly, you know, day over day, especially now and people saying, I was really impressed with how you showed up. I had never considered switching platforms and then my platform did nothing for me in COVID and I witnessed as you did X, Y, Z, you know, ABC and I want to be a part of what you're building and that's the power of community. I agree with everything you said. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it it has to be both. And if you're just looking for numbers and you're thinking about community the wrong way, I think. Um, I mean, it's similar and, you know, you could kind of tie back to the way we look at marketing. Right. There's like brand equity, brand awareness, brand sentiment. Can you measure it? Yeah, kind of. But it really like businesses have always understood that um, brand is something intangible that like if you hit it right, if you really tap into an identity and build a brand that people love and connect with, 
then that can make all the difference for a business. Um, that said, you know, you also want to be tracking how your emails are converting and how the website's converting and, um, you know, how all your marketing campaigns are driving new leads and awareness. I think it, it's the same for community. I think like on the fundamental level, it, it has to be something you believe in and it has to be part of your culture. Um, and we know it's valuable. We know it's valuable the same way we know, you know, your mother is valuable. And like, I think like the holy grail that we want to get to is, uh, I think we're just still really lacking in the systems and tools for getting data to complement that. And the holy grail is going to be when, um, I was talking with uh, Mary Thingwell on a podcast interview late, uh, recently, talks about like community qualified leads. It's like it, when you can gather these kind of touch points that you have in your community with with prospects, with leads, with customers, and and clearly see how um, those interactions played into their buyer journey or them, you know, renewing or whatever it is, then then community is the same as marketing or advertising or sales. Like you never know exactly what causes someone to make a purchase decision. You just know what like touch points are and what those influences are and how you qualify those those leads along that journey. So that's another challenge for you, Natalie. You got to give me <laughs> one metric to measure belonging across all communities and also develop a system for tracking every community touch point and tying it back to the sales journey. You are really giving me some homework. I, I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be busy. You, yeah, I don't think you're busy enough now. So nope. you know, I had to give you some more work. Um, our, well, you know, we, we could do this for hours. This is I have so many more questions, but we're out of time. So I'm going to move into our rapid fire question round. Let's do it. Are you ready? I am ready. This is the most exciting part of the podcast. <laughs> we save it for the end. Okay. First question. What's your favorite book or podcast or newsletter that everyone should check out? All right. Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. How I oh, built so this. I, I love her. Anything by her, really, truthfully. I um, know. Yeah. You could just say Brene Brown. <sighs> she's she's the queen. Um, How I Built This by Guy Raz in terms of podcast. I've listened to nearly every single episode while driving love across it. the country. Um, and then newsletter. Any, any favorite episodes? Um, Chicken Salad Chick. I have to go back oh, to Chicken Salad Chick. Okay, because it's it's one of the ones. Yeah, people click on the name brands as a side note. They click on like the oh that brand. I've heard of that. It is one of the best storytelling episodes I believe ever done in a podcast form. So Chicken Salad Chick, how I built this, and then newsletter. I've got to give it up for both the Skim and the Morning Brew. Both are great. I love them. Like very short, quick format tidbits. You can figure out what's going on both in, you know, politics in the world and then business. It's fascinating. And um, I really enjoy it in the morning. Love it. I haven't read The Morning Brew. I've, I've read The Skim. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, also a great community program and community team at The Skim. Mm -hmm. And uh, How I Built This is a good episode about The Knot as well. I'll recommend yes. that one because yes, it's I've an interesting like community building journey. They started off as a community as well. Uh, okay, second question. Uh, what's your favorite like question or discussion prompt to engage your community? Okay, um, probably a tie between uh, share like a success, like share what you're launching in your business, share what you're doing in your business. Those are always super popular and it's really cool to see what people are working on. And then tied with shouting out somebody else. I love posts that are about amplifying other people. So, you know, we do a lot that's like shout out somebody who's crushing it this week, shout out an entrepreneur who is like giving back in their community. Um, those types of posts are awesome. But also, you know, from a strategy perspective, it kind of re-engages an additional person. So for each person that engages, you're going to get somebody else tagged and brought into the conversation, which I always love. And I think the algorithms favor. Love it. Great ones. Okay. Number three. What's uh, one piece of advice for someone considering starting a new community today? The closer you can get to understanding the mindset of your members, the more successful you're going to be. Like you really have to know their pain. You really have to provide a solution um, to their problem. And I think the closer you can understand their psychology, the, the better you're suited to, to grow it and scale it. Love it. All right. Building on your answer to number two. Who is an up-and-coming up community builder that you want to give a shout-out to? Um, Raina Pomeroy at Modern Fertility. They are changing the landscape with yeah Great women's example. reproductive. And she's in CMX. She is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely phenomenal. Love it. Great example. Great shout-out. Okay. Number five, what are your go-to self-care activities? 
Oh, anything that requires creating. So journaling, doodling, photography. Love it. All right. You ready for the easiest question of all? <laughs> uh -oh. Last question. I say the easiest for last. If today was your last day on earth and you had to sum up all of your life's lessons and experiences into one piece of Twitter size advice to pass on to the rest of the world, what would that advice be? Kindness always. Hmm. Why would that be your advice? I, I think that all of us as human beings are carrying far more on our shoulders than the world will ever see. I've experienced this. I had a benign brain tumor. I had surgery. I went in for brain surgery, battled infertility, like all of this behind the scenes while I'm crushing it in my professional life. And I can't tell you the impact of someone just being kind in those moments of hardship. And I think in life, if we can be kind to one another, even and especially when we don't understand or we struggle to find common ground, if we can approach it with kindness, I think we're going to get a lot farther as, as a global community in a world. So kindness always. Love it. Great parting words. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of your time and your wisdom. Uh, want to just share some gratitude for you. I mean, the work that you've done, um, building Rising Tide Society, I think like you, you've built an incredible authentic community and you're someone who's like really trying to figure out the ROI and how it fits into a business, but in an, in an authentic way. Um, and you're, you're just so like articulate about how you have learned these things and the systems that you've developed. And um, just, I, I know everyone's going to get a ton of value out of this episode and everything else that you're creating. So um, really appreciate everything that, that you've done and that you're continuing to do. Thank you so much for having me. I, this is such an honor. You have no idea um, how <laughs> much I freaked out when I knew that we were going to get to come on this call. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, the same goes right back. Thank you for all the work that you guys do you know, at, at CMX and at Bevy as well, and just really transforming the way communities operate and the value that we provide to the world. So this was a huge honor. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks. I think we're, we're kindred spirits. Yep. Um, what last, lastly, where can everyone find you? Where should they go to follow you? Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, depending on where you want to connect, whether it's Honeybook or Rising Tide Society or me personally, you can find all of, of those um, different spaces on the web from honeybook.com to if you want to get involved with Rising Tide, if you are a business owner listening um, or just curious about anything we talked about and want to kind of scope it out, uh, go for it. Um, honeybook.com slash Rising Tide. And then look on the personal side, I am always down for a good DM conversation. So uh, hit me up on Instagram, just at Natalie Frank. Amazing. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.